awesome. Continuing our celebration of one year of Ghostbusters Afterlife, because we have to do this every year. We love anniversaries around here. Uh, Rob Simonson. Rob, thank you so much for doing this. We really appreciate your time. How are you? Thanks, man. I'm great. I'm great. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, where where are you in the world? Are you you're on the West Coast? Uh, I'm in New York right now. Oh, okay. Cool. For, for a visit, I'm I'm staying at a friend's place, but uh, my my home is in L.A. Okay, your home is in L.A. So we're we're both on the East Coast today. So it's not too early for you. No, uh, right. not bad. Cool, cool. Uh, well, Rob, you are uh, you have this incredible career. Uh, you've done so much. You, you're working on all of these huge projects you've got big stuff coming up obviously we're going to be talking about ghostbusters afterlife but i i challenge anybody to go to uh, your wikipedia page uh which i'm i'm assuming is pretty accurate uh i know sometimes in the in the personal life or uh biographical areas of wikipedia pages they they might get some stuff wrong but you, you've worked on incredible movies incredible projects but today we're going to be really focused on ghostbusters afterlife so rob just for our audience who, who doesn't know who you are and what you do and how you got into you know music composition and all that, can you give a little bit of a high level, uh, you know, how you got into this industry? Oh, I'll try. <laughs> Just narrow it down to like three sentences. No, no, yeah, I mean, it, it's I I really do believe that you know before you start, I'll say this: the the musical components of film are so important and i think they're more important to people than they even realize sometimes i think i don't know if the average moviegoer comes out and immediately starts talking about the score but i know me and my friends do but uh -huh. the, the the way it affects people the way it affects your viewing experience it, it's the to me the most integral part it can make or break any film yeah well it didn't occur to me until quite a bit later in life uh that film composing was a career uh even though when i was very young i was constantly listening to movie soundtracks they just were the soundtracks to to me playing basically so i remember at my grandma's house just putting on the star wars it's pretty much like the imperial march on repeat over and over uh as my cousins and i were were playing in the living room and and there were a lot of uh, things that I would just sit down at the piano and kind of pick out by ear movie themes. But my kind of younger years of music were uh, some piano lessons, some instruction, but a lot of just playing around. I really loved, I, I, I was very protective of my relationship with the piano, which was very much kind of a discovery thing instead of uh, someone teaching me a lot. So I'd learn a little bit and then I'd be like, okay, that's enough. I, I just want to play. So it was making up songs and picking up things by ear. And then as I got into high school and college, I started playing more jazz and studied jazz piano a bit, took some music classes at different uh, universities. But in high school, I became friends with a group of people who were spending their free time making movies and I was always messing around with video cameras when I was growing up. Okay. Whatever I could get my hands on. But these, this group of, of guys, they were kind of operating at a higher level. And I was like, wow, yeah, let's, let's do this. So we would just kind of 
make little films and and put music to it and it, it didn't occur to me to make the music to put to it because i think at that time it was like i mean how can you compare to like the sound of an orchestra if you're just putting on something from an album onto what you create uh technology was just very different back then so um but that group of of people all went and studied filmmaking, kind of different aspects of filmmaking in college. So when we started making films, uh, when people started making their student films and whatnot, um, I got involved and I got a, a taste of it, and I it just my mind exploded, I, and I just thought, oh my gosh, of course, like this combines my love of storytelling and being in film and music and. And uh, so I, I, I just jumped in and, and didn't look back. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I'm a drummer, so I think it's a little bit different for me because it's just I, drummers know. Like when, when I see somebody playing piano or guitar, I'm like, you guys are playing the real instruments. I'm just over here. I'm just <laughs> over here hitting stuff. Uh, yeah, that's amazing. And I think I know I can relate to that. Uh, I mean, the John Williams Jurassic Park score, like I had that. I had that soundtrack playing it on a loop. Uh, you know, that's just what you did when you were a kid and you loved movies, but you wanted to kind of like extract every aspect of the movie. It's not enough to just watch the movie. It's, it's, you know, it's the music, it's knowing, yeah. you know, the, the actors and what else they did. And it's, it's, it's a whole thing. Um, so you've worked with Jason Reitman a lot. This is your third or fourth project with him. Third. Yeah. Afterlife was the third film that we did together. Awesome. Awesome. And can you talk a little bit about that relationship? I mean, this is, you've been doing this for a long time. So how did, um, was it Tully the first one you did together? Yeah. So Tully, um, I think was temp edited with, uh, a lot of my music and okay. Jason, I think fell in love with the sound of it and reached out and we did Tully and, the first thing that I, I wrote and presented to him, he just absolutely loved and edited into the film and really had no notes for it. Um, That's nice. All, 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 <laughs> that wasn't indicative of all of our work together. You know? <laughs> Plenty of times where it was like, that's not it, and we got to keep looking. Uh, but that was a really great way to start. Um, and I thought, wow, what a, what an easy customer! <laughs> right, right, right. Oh yeah, these Reitmans are really easy. It'll be really, it'll be you know straightforward from here. I mean, I think that's what I love about Jason Reitman is like, and what I love about Afterlife and specifically the music is like it. The, you know, I I went back and re-listened to the whole score yesterday, and I've done that multiple times, and I've got favorite standout tracks, and we can get into some of the the deep dive stuff uh, if if you're cool with that. Um, but it really is. And especially watching the movie, like, I guess this is a really good place to kind of start. This is a unique task with afterlife specifically because everybody who loves ghostbusters knows the, the, the music, you know, you know, every musical cue, you know, the Elmer Bernstein score. Um, what's so cool and which what I was anticipating so much in the buildup to afterlife is we, we kind of got the sense there was going to be like a Bernstein-esque, you know, sprinkle throughout, but how challenging was that? 
And how unique was that of a task to kind of take this existing canon musically and build out what I think is a completely familiar and also wholly unique sound for this movie. Like you did. So- I hope, you know, you did something really, really special with Ghostbusters Afterlife. I really, and, and we, you know, this is what we do. We talk to the fans all the time. We talk about it all the time. It is really, uh, a, I don't know, a master class. Like, and that's coming from somebody who really loves Ghostbusters and is passionate about the original score and also passionate about the Randy Edelman score from the second movie. Like, these are things that are weaved into our, our minds as, as diehard fans. So, how challenging was that? Like, how, how do you even begin to think about what what that process looks like? Well, the first thing that Jason, the first thing we, that Jason and I did was we sat down and had lunch, um, and he told me. He said, you know, this is I'm, I'm, I'm telling everyone this, but this film is about setting yourself aside and really being a custodian of Ghostbusters, of what has already come. And at the same time, we knew that there were set pieces and there was action in Afterlife that uh, was going to need a kind of score and a kind of feeling that was nowhere in the original films. And, uh, you know, the original Ghostbusters kind of goes from like comedy to spooky to apocalyptic. Right, right. But there's not really action. Uh, A lot of the the moments where people are leaping into action was was tracked with songs. And um, I thought at first that we would be kind of replicating that, like just kind of going with the fun kind of comedic side of just like put, putting on a fun song as Ecto-1 is, you know, ripping around a corner or something like that. But there was a lot more action here and the scope was, was you know, a lot bigger in terms of, I think, the visual effects and um, uh, so it was really like knowing that we have to get dressed up in the in the Elmer clothes in the score of the original and the feeling of original Ghostbusters, but we needed to go to new places. Right. And so we really talked a lot about mid-80s action adventure films and Amblin vibes of that kind of wonderment and that sense of like this kind of soaring and things that are just kind of pumping and moving fast and uh, but there's a lightness to them. And really, it's a style of scoring. It's a feeling. It's an approach. Um, there's a, a kind of optimism and a hope um, mm-hmm. that I think a lot of those films and those scores have. And so it was really, you know, once I heard that from Jason, it was really about thinking, just digesting that and watching mid-'80s action-adventure films and looking at... E.T. and Back to the Future and Goonies and these things that I think are just kind of iconic that that really marked that feeling and that vibe because Ghostbusters came out in that same era but had a very distinctly different uh, musical approach. So figuring out, for me also looking at Elmer and 
not just how he scored Ghostbusters, but how he was scoring films in general in that time frame, also historically. And I started recognizing certain patterns and, um, you know, certain proclivities. And then just really digesting a lot of, of you know, the iconic scores of, of that of that decade and that era and um, just kind of trying to digest it all and then doing what I felt was the best service that I could do to that goal. Yeah. It's really amazing. And that kind of like that kind of thought process, I think, you know, you get the sense that that was kind of the direction Jason was giving to every aspect of the film, because like, it's obviously a Ghostbusters movie and it feels like a Ghostbusters movie, but it's also this throwback to, you know, movies like ET or like back to the future. And it has that feel. And, um, one thing, you know, throughout the score, there's a lot of brass and there's a lot of, uh, these exciting, you know, the, the Alan Silvestri is the first name that comes to mind for me because uh, the, you know, back to the future, if you're a Ghostbusters fan, you, like also love back to the future it's it's like 1a and 1b for most people um but hearing those those big brass you know 80s kind of adventure you know when when the the whole ecto-1 chase scene um it, it was so it was pleasing but also like surprising because you know like like you kind of said earlier the first score you know ghostbusters is very it's the the Ghostbusters score is pretty similar to the Stripe score in the sense that mm. there, there's just a lot of bouncing piano and it's it's kind of choppy and fun. And then it, it goes to the apocalyptic, you know, doom and gloom, but there isn't those big action set pieces. Um, so the way you weaved it in uh, is great. Opening of the movie, that first track, that's it. Uh, and I would suggest if anybody has the, you know, means to to go find uh, the score and get it on vinyl if you can but it's it's available out there um there's this uh we, we were able to see the movie at new york comic-con for that first big screening and you, you got the piano at the beginning but then there's like this a deep i don't know I, I'm, I'm not good at identifying instruments by by ear so I'll, I'll name things and you tell me how wrong i am but it sounds like a baritone or like a bass clarinet or something like that Am I close? Yeah. Well, there's uh, there's a lot of wind stuff going on. There's actually bassoon and contrabassoon, bassoon, and, and bass clarinet, yeah. uh, and and there's oboes going on and lots of piccolo. It's a very piccolo heavy score. Yeah, there is a lot of like I love that though because like, uh, well, I, I I took notes on on a lot of different stuff, but just mm. specifically that that opening, you know when you're approaching that and this is just in general for film like are you working on these pieces well before you see anything are you on set trying to get a feel like how what does the process look like to start kind of uh capturing it it's always different um depending on the film but on this one we i did visit set i you know i was brought on at the script stage before he started shooting um and i actually 
you know, Jason and I had lunch and he kind of told me his vision. <clears throat> and, you know, this, this was a, a scope of film that I hadn't done before. Right. And so Jason was like, I love working with you. This is an entirely thing, new thing. I don't know if it's in your wheelhouse. And I said, well, I don't know either. Let me go try to write something. And right. So I wrote an eight minute suite and recorded it with a orchestra in LA. And I went to Warner brothers, which is where the original score was recorded. Mm. The, the room has been changed since then. So it actually sounds a little bit different, but you know, I think that was, it was a good place for it. And, um, and I wrote some material in there that, kind of demonstrated this uh you know taking taking ghostbusters themes and and flavors and kind of walking in, in new clothes with them and he loved it and based off of off of that success i kind of sketched out a bunch of things and i would just keep sending him things and um i think that opening sequence was mostly the editor kind of editing together a bunch of different sketches that I had delivered. Um, and, you know, Jason, there was just a couple things in particular that Jason really gravitated towards and then put into the film a lot and, and actually wouldn't let me touch. I was like, let me rescore this. He's like, no, it's perfect. If I would him on it. But um, that's funny. Yeah. Yeah. You know, J Jason, I, I think, you know, when, when he finds something that, that really opens him up and excites him, he's just like so, just so, uh, you know, delighted to kind of put it into the film, um, which is great. It, it's great. But it was funny where I was like, can I rescore this? And no, don't touch it. <laughs> um, right, right. But, they, you know, there, there was a lot of the DNA of the wind material and the, what would eventually become the Spangler theme. Um, which we hear kind of in a progressively uh, solid way throughout the score. Right. Yeah. So that, that, that opening sequence was really something that kind of got edited together. And then I came in and was able to, uh, you know, help things out and make some additional transitions and kind of reskin it a little bit. But that, you know, I think that Jason was, was very, careful to set up the beginning of the film as a ghostbusters film and i think he wanted everything from the visuals to the music to the sound design to really let the audience know you are in a ghostbusters film we know what that is we're going to new places but we're not like reinventing the wheel we're trying to make a continuation of the feeling of the original so um and i think once we got through the first act things loosened up quite a bit. And I think everyone was like, okay, we know where we're going with the score. We know where we're going with the sound design. Like, um, so it was a, but you know, it's a, it's a process. I mean, I can't imagine being in Jason's shoes and feeling the pressure of being the son of being like the, the one stepping into a franchise that is so beloved uh, in a time where the world can say whatever they want. <laughs> oh, I mean, we, yeah. I mean that it like just fandom in general, like, and we yeah. talked, um, 
we had a Eric, Eric Reich on last night and we, we talked a lot about, or a little bit about just, I don't know if people really know that, you know, Ghostbusters is kind of like Star Trek or Star Wars in the sense that there's like these, these deep, hardcore, passionate fan bases that, uh, unfortunately they, those can go really toxic and really, really negative very quickly. And we've seen it before. Um, so yeah, it isn't a lot of pressure like in a, I, I can't imagine, but I think like everybody top to bottom, like rose to the occasion and, and the output is so much, this is not, you know, I've been waiting for, uh, the, the continuation of this series since night, literally 1989. If the running joke was when I got out, I was five years old and I got out of the theater and I asked my mom, when are they going to make another one? And she said, probably pretty soon. Uh, so, you know, it's, I'm now almost 40. So, um, but the pressure was there, but this was not the third Ghostbusters movie that I think anybody thought could ever happen because it almost plays out like fan fiction. Like mm. it's just, it really is, uh, you know, an incredible feat, but what you did specifically, especially like go back to that opening, like there's these pieces of the original theme, you know, dun, 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 dun. but to play them big when, you know, the Ecto's coming and, that could in the wrong hands that could be really cheesy like it, it to you know like to to it, to take something that exists and make it bigger and bolder and more in your face but it but it's the opposite of that it's so impactful and it's kind of like you just said it's like oh this is ghostbusters i i i'm hearing something familiar but it's new like uh just really, really like i said really special uh so thank you i'm just gonna keep thanking you um a couple standout tracks as we get going here um i really like the the somerville track me it's like a throwback to like early 90s whimsical it actually kind of reminded me of like groundhog day a little bit mm. uh you know kind of keeping it in the the harold ramus canon um mm. uh, but it, it really like it introduces you to like the 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 hustle and bustle of this small town where there's not a lot of hustle and bustle it really captures the feeling of somerville very well yeah that one actually we uh, we tried uh a number of things before we we found that and um you know i think that there's a an elmer-esque flavor to the you know and that's kind of really drawing from elmer vibes and uh also this 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 feeling of it's a montage almost. So you're kind of getting introduced to this small town and the quirky characters. And um, so it was really about finding something that just felt like it had this kind of boppy Elmer vibe, but with, you know, a little bit more of a elegant orchestra. I mean, Elmer's not that Elmer's work isn't elegant, but the, the production of Elmer's scores in that era and, and the sound of Ghostbusters is quite close and a little dirty and dry. 
And we really tried to capture that at the same time, also have this kind of like smoother, more broad Amblin kind of thing. And a lot of that has to do with the room and the miking distance and the character of the playing. And so I think that the combination of that kind of bouncy theme with a larger orchestra in a, in a bigger room, because we recorded at Sony and the original was recorded at Warner Brothers, which is a smaller room. So everything is like a little tighter in, in the original. And this one is kind of broad and it opens up. And I just think that the sound of that can kind of be indicative of, um, you know, a larger world, even though it's a small town, it's a larger world. So, but that one was, um, you know, it took, took a few tries before we got there. One of my favorite shots of the movie is, is in that scene, and it's where uh, Callie drops uh, uh, Trevor off, and he gets out of the car. The way the camera pans around, you see that wide shot, and she, you know, the car starts driving this way, and he starts running that way. And there's something I, I noticed it the first time we watched it, and I was like, there's something very effective about the way the music plays uh, with that camera work. Just, just mm -hmm. awesome. Um, so and I, I've had friends who make fun of me for saying that they're like your favorite scene in afterlife is when the car drives opposite of, you know, I was like, I'm like, look, I'm a, I'm a high level, you know, film fan here. Okay. We can't, we, we well, all love Gozer, but it's the car. It's, it, it's, it's actually, <clears throat> it is a memorable shot. And I remember the first time I saw it too, because I remember that time in my life. I've moved around a few times when I was a kid and I remember that moment of, you get dropped off. You don't want people to see you getting dropped off. Right. Mom, you know, right. you be cool. You want to kind of have your own thing when you walk up and, and just the way he's kind of hustling to get in. Uh, it, it was very reminiscent for me and nostalgic of, of that time in my life. So there is, I agree with you. It's a good moment. Um, another standout scene, the the Razor Cult scene, um, the with Dan Aykroyd in his monologue, the "Don't Go Chasing Ghosts" is the name of the piece. Again, this is my favorite uh, scene in the movie. I'll say that about every scene, but th this really is to me the way it's shot, the way it's lit, the when when you f get the full reveal after he picks up the phone and you see the wide shot, the way the music kind of like, I don't know what the right terminology is, but something happens where it, it almost like releases, mm. if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about scoring this scene specifically? Uh, yeah, that, that was another one that took a few tries. And, you know, I think it was just about, um, you know, raised is telling a story. So we're, we're having to kind of score the history of Egon, uh, in this, um, in this moment. And, you know, I, I think that, that, that it's kind of like opening the storybook. So that, that idea that like it opens up is very accurate. Yeah. Yeah. Really, really cool. Um, and, uh, 
you know, I, that's also kind of a breaking point in the movie where you're you're kind of moving into to a new chapter of what what's going to be happening, and you're you're because you're waiting for that backstory. You're you're waiting for what happened to Egon, what happened to the Ghostbusters, and the music complements it uh, really well. Uh, we talked a little bit about the Spangler theme and the Cali theme. That kind of, you know. Like you said, you hear it in bits and pieces throughout the movie, and then as you get towards the end, it becomes more prominent. Um, you know, going back to Dana's theme, uh, when you're a kid watching Ghostbusters, you know, at four years old, I don't know if you're thinking about Dana's theme. You 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 kind of put the pieces together as you grow up, but like, I don't know. I I, I love this piece. Uh, it's very uh hooky it, it it captures you and then we'll talk about reconciliation actually you need to apologize to me for reconciliation because this is uh a beautiful and brutal piece of music that i go back to all of the time but we'll get there in a second oh. can you talk about constructing uh Callie's theme and and how you wanted to weave that in uh throughout the score You know, I had all sorts of uh, of intentions to to be more deliberate with a theme, but uh, that little motif was ne actually never intended to be a theme. It was it was a motif, um, not designed to have to to carry so much emotional weight. Mm -hmm. But uh, Jason loved this little bit and kept putting it into the film, and it was kind of like as we scored the film um that little motif that little hook was like let's rely on this more it just kept showing up as he kind of put it in more places in the film and then it was like oh this is it, it just it was interesting it kind of revealed itself to us it was not this kind of deliberate thing it was like the tail wagging the dog a little bit and then um i had to figure out how to turn that motif into something that felt more like a theme. So it was a very organic process as we got deeper into the film. And then by the time we were at the end of the film, we knew what that theme was. And then it was like, can it sustain a thematic treatment like this, where we have to kind of go to these, uh, to these pretty, pretty high emotional points. Right. And so I just, tested <laughs> and i was like well i'll be damned it, it might works. work <laughs> do you think that comes from are, are there pieces uh or or themes i mean the ones that always jump out are, are the john williams you know the specific the leia's theme or the jedi theme mm. you know when those swells happen in those movies we've seen them so many times but uh it does elicit this like emotional like you know, you're, you're kind of going up a hill and then, then the release happens. But do you go back to any specific pieces in, in that time? Or are you trying to like not have those kind of influences or how does that, how does that happen? I mean, it, it you know, that I knew that I knew what we were trying to do with Ghostbusters. So I, I wasn't, you know, shy about the, the, the homages at all. Um, 
you know, because for me, it was really kind of delving into my, my childhood. So when, when Jason said, uh, you know, this is about servicing what came before you and blah, 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 and all this kind of stuff, I just said, okay, I, I'm going to be a student and I'm going to voraciously ingest uh, these scores. So, you know, listening to E.T. and Back to the Future and Star Wars and uh, Cocoon, you know, I listen like James Horner stuff as well. And um, I wanted it to, to, to feel like those things. Yeah. Um, you know, even if it didn't feel like me, I was just like, you know, this is okay. This is like a very specific uh, opportunity. And I just really embraced it, you know, and I felt like um, that's what I would want out of this. And that's really the the overall approach that I took because I've seen films that are reboots or continuations of films from that era. And I've, I, I've been left disappointed or wanting yeah. just as a fan because I, I watched those movies, you know, I d devoured them when I was a kid. Right, right. And the scores were so important to me. They, they, they gave me so many emotions. Um, they, they helped me to discover certain emotions, I think. And, you know, the Star Wars scores especially. I mean, I know that it's, it's just such a common thing for my generation of composers to just say like well star wars you know why we why we became composers but i really do feel like there are flavors in those scores that help to create a feeling inside of me that that uh was just so important and i think it helped people to kind of move towards something um that can kind of be communicated with music and it's really hard to communicate with anything else yeah and um so anyway i mean there were there were all sorts of of those scores i i kept going back to and i think mostly it was because i mean i was definitely looking at the orchestration of these scores but it was also just to kind of implant a feeling and the spirit of how those films were scored so i was also watching them re-watching these films and and et has been one of my favorite scores for so long and so i watched that film a lot <laughs> yeah. because you know it's like and i also spent time trying to imagine i mean there's great youtubes of of showing you these famous scenes from these famous films without the score and how dead and awkward it feels yep and watching these films and just trying to become aware of wow what would this be like if there wasn't music if you that sequence where elliot gets on his bike and goes and trails the reese's pieces in the forest and whatnot you watch that without score yeah or think of you know it's, it's everything it's it's really everything <laughs> it's and, everything and i feel like uh there's been it, with Besides animation, I feel like there's really been a turn. I think it's changing now, but for the last two decades, really just a turn more towards minimal scoring, more towards being very reserved. And those mid-80s films are anything but reserved. They're no, it's, yeah. It's almost like you feel like there's a, the orchestra's there with you, like in the theater. Yeah. Like, yeah. And I love – and it, that's what Afterlife does, and maybe it's going to – 
be uh you know almost like a thought leader in that sense where you know we we know that that directors and vfx they, they want to use more practical effects because it, it, it is a throwback and it's, it's again that thing where i don't know if when my parents go see jurassic world and they don't like it as much as the original jurassic park if they are computing in their head the reasons behind that is it the score is it there's too much you know cgi dinosaurs versus what it was like to have that real t-rex you know dropping his eye down or her eye down sorry um i uh i don't know but i think for for people like us who really like absorb this stuff and study it like we talked about the score for afterlife leading up to it a lot because we we were wondering like we kind of are getting this feeling from the original trailer and from the original tease, like it feels like an Amblin movie. Is it going to have an Amblin type score? Is it going to feel, you know, we, we argue all the time, John Williams, you know, you can narrow it down to maybe top five, right? Like, is it, you know, Jaws, ET, Jurassic Park, you know, Empire Strikes Back, whatever. But like, I always go to ET as well. I think, I think that's the great, you know, the great compositions of, of film history. Uh, so yeah, and you know, there's a uh, there's a William Walton piece. Um, I mean, John Williams. I mean, to me, he's 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 absolutely the best. But he was also someone that was highly influenced by other composers, highly. And I know that you can go, you know, very deep on the internet where people do all these comparisons and say, right. "Oh no, this the jaw the Jawa theme is actually you know this, right right." and all this kind of stuff and it, you know i have i have so much sympathy <laughs> for john because you know he came up in a time when there were there was a vanguard of of classical composers that had had kind of recently been pushing the world of classical music forward and he came from that you know it, it was he came from that. He came from, you know, the corn gold school of film scoring. I mean, he was also influenced by these things as he was a young composer coming up. And George Lucas was also, and Spielberg, you know, they're big classical heads. And they, from what I have learned from it, I don't know that this is true or not, but seems like they probably tempt those movies with these classical pieces that then John went back in and in my opinion, brought out so much emotion, like took them to another level. Like he's not, it's not like he's just copying this moment and then doesn't know what to do with it. You know, he's just like, oh, I know what this is and let me show you what this is. And I think that also affected how I approached Afterlife because I was also going back to the classical music and the composers that were influencing John Williams and Elmer Bernstein. Um, you know, I think Silvestri and, and Horner were like a younger generation. Right. Um, but, you know, you can find all these things. And so I was going back to like, well, what inspired John with this? And there's a William Walton piece. William Walton is an incredible composer. And John Williams took a lot from William Walden. And um, there's a piece that is clearly the end of E.T. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty clearly. And so, you know, we looked at that. And it was like, well, you know, this is so effective. It works so well. 
was I trying to cop that for, for the end of, of afterlife? Absolutely. <laughs> but also doing it in an, in a new way, because again, it's like, this is, this is what the whole endeavor of afterlife was getting into the clothes of the original and walking into new territory. So long answer. Uh, I loved the moments where I feel like I'm bringing something in that is an homage and it wasn't an ego thing for me. It wasn't like, Oh, I'm going to do the right. Rob Simonson thing. And then, you know, whatever it's like, and I don't even know what that is. I'm, I'm very much into just exploring and being broad and trying all sorts of different things and playing in all sorts of different genres. But to me, this was like, I want to feel like I felt when I was a kid and I watched all those scores. Well, I mean, that's a great bridge to, I did want to talk about that. The final piece with reconciliation. This is a beautiful piece of music. It is a wonderful shower listen. It is wonderful in the movie. It is wonderful in the car. Um, it it kind of builds, and you're getting like these high points of emotion. And the original Ghostbusters are there, and Egon is there, and Callie, and you know, he's saying goodbye and hello to to his grandchildren. And then you have the hug. And then there's this swell, and then you get kind of like a. It feels like there's like a chugging violin, like a. Uh, 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 uh. And then, is it like a solo violin or stringed instrument that comes in there and has this really beautiful? And if that is what you're referencing, is kind of homage to, you know, the end of ET. Like it, there's similarities, but again, it is a wholly original piece of music, and my favorite. Uh, musical piece of the movie so if you can i mean you just talked about it but if there's anything you want to add to that uh please do yeah well i mean in in the terms of the homage stuff you know there's a there's a conversation in, in general um about structure versus content and looking at the underlying structure of things without copying the content you know right. is is like what what works about this and yeah, I think that there's that moment with the hug where, you know, there's a there's an uncertainty about what's going to happen and things are kind of hanging. And then when she hugs, you hear the chugging and the, it's actually the celli and they're going from, 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 from. Right, right. Okay. And it's this, you know, there's, there, it's not staccato. It's not supposed to be this like chuck, 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 chuck. It's this like forceful movement, kind of like strong flowing water. It's unbroken but it's definitely forward moving. And I think that when you feel that, you know, I think a lot of times about <clears throat> promise, there's a, I, I took a writing class um, years ago by a screenwriter and his entire thing uh, is, is called storytelling is promise. And his kind of main thesis is that a story should 
give you a promise at the beginning that gets fulfilled at the end. And if it gets fulfilled, it feels satisfying. If it doesn't, it feels unsatisfying. And there's a certain amount of like, you've betrayed the person that feels like they've been given this promise. And I think about films like that. And I think about scores like that. I think about, you know, what promise is the score going to give you at the beginning? And I think that being able to land with the Spangler theme in that kind of broad emotional way, I didn't realize that that was the promise that was being set up. But you hear that the second that the family drives up to the farmhouse, you hear right. this little, it's piccolo and it's in the distance and it's, you know, it's oboes and clarinets playing it. And it's kind of spooky and distant. And then at the end, it's like, it's played by a solo violin and, and it, it you know, it's, it's wrenching the heart. But I think that, in an entire score, think about what are the promises that you're setting up at the beginning and are you going to fulfill those at the end? And then even within specific pieces and with specific movements of pieces. So I think that moment when the hug drops and you just feel this like major chord that's pumping at you. Yes. It sets up this like, please, please break my heart. <laughs> yeah, no, and it does. And then when, when it, when it does begin to break your heart and you have that panning shot of the, the original three ghostbusters. And, uh, this is one of the best acting performances of Bill Murray's career. There's like this lip quiver. It doesn't say a word, but it says everything. And it also says, you know, it jumps out of the movie. And if you know, backstory of, of Harold Ramis and Bill Murray, it, it, it says even more than that. So, um, and then the, it's such an interesting point that you're making because we talk a lot about uh, with, with the the newer Star Wars trilogy and uh, what whether or not people like those movies or not is kind of uh, it's it's different for everybody. I you know I personally think there's there's really great stuff and stuff that I'm not so much into, but um, there is an unfulfilled promise. We talked about this last night with Eric as well as you never see the the original gang back together one mm. time. Mm. and this movie does that mm. and it happens to have this really beautiful musical piece that is gut-wrenching like i said earlier it is emotional uh and it, it's it's also wonderful because i i want to feel those emotions when i'm watching a movie i want i want the fulfilled promise but i also want to you know be completely lost in what these characters are going through and 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 what we've been through is as you know it as a fandom or as moviegoers, especially like coming out of COVID, like there, there was all of these other layers that were there. So it was just really, really fantastic. And if, um, as we talk, I'm, I'm going to edit in some of these pieces as we go for people to follow along. But I mean, if you're listening to this and you haven't listened to the score in a while, or you've only watched it, uh, in the context of the movie, I definitely want people to go, go check it out. Uh, so, yeah, Rob, thank you so much for doing this. A couple, if you've got two, three more minutes, I wanted to touch on a couple last minute things. Sure. Um, you worked on Stranger Things, mm -hmm. um, did some really great stuff with that. You, you contributed, or, or can you talk about your your involvement, especially with the the orchestral arrangement for uh, the Kate Bush song, which like. <laughs> I did not. That was one bet I would have lost. Like, will Kate Bush have this huge resurgence in 2022? And it was, it was like the biggest thing ever. Can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I, I mean, that was, uh, that was quite a special thing. Um, I had scored the Adam Project 
for Sean Levy, who's one of the executive producers, or he is the executive producer yep. of Stranger Things. And, um, and we, you know, Sean was a producer, an executive producer on The Spectacular Now. And uh, that was back in 2012. And he, I remember was, was, you know, he, he, he loves music. He loves score. And he kind of was over the moon about the job that I did on spectacular now. And I think he felt that it really, you know, transformed the film. And so since then he's kind of looked for something to, to collaborate on and, and nothing quite lined up until um, the Adam project. And so he, he made a very lovely and, and, and impassioned phone call to me telling me that it's like, he hears me doing all of these kind of different things and he wants to give me a canvas to kind of pull it all together for, for the Adam project. And we did it, we had such a great time working together. I mean, he's an amazing person to work with and, and so enthusiastic. Anyway, uh, the Duffer brothers saw the Adam project and also felt like there was a, a touch of Amblin in that it's a much different score than afterlife. Um, but I think, you know, film wise, there's some Amblin moments and, and the Duffer brothers really kind of flipped. And, and I'd later found out that they've been kind of longtime fans of, of mine as well. That's awesome. But, you know, nerve and some other kind of synth hybrid scores that I've done and whatnot. Um, and they knew that they had these moments in this season where they really felt like they wanted to go big and, uh, and they were over the moon about, about the Adam project score. So yeah, they, they called me up and they said, there's four things that we want you to look at, you know, and one is Kate Bush running up that hill. And I was <laughs> like, what? <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. So, you know, to be able to write this kind of love letter, cause there's the scoring of, of the song in the scene and then there's the end credits piece. And so I, I kind of got to do a proper cover that's like a lullaby thing. And, you know, similar to Ghostbusters, it, those, the Stranger Things stuff was, it was all pulling from existing material. And I have to say, there's, there's something that's kind of comforting about that. Like, I know that the entire success of this theme or whatnot is not on my shoulders. So I'd get to come and take existing material and then just like try to do victory laps around the material, which is already inherently great. So um, that was really kind of a beautiful thing. And then I, I wrote it for the London Contemporary Orchestra to be recorded at Air Studios. And like, these were very deliberate choices with um, how they sound, you know, how the orchestra sounds in that room with like the kind of beautiful long reverb tail that, that is in air studios, which used to be a church. So it's got this kind of very reverberant quality and mm -hmm. casting a smaller orchestra uh, for the Kate Bush stuff. And really just, um, you know, trying, trying to, trying to just do, do it proper. And then yeah. the, the other two bits, uh, including the finale were like, you know, I think the, the Duffers were like, we wanted to feel like the end of empire. So I was like, 
Let's do it. Let's go. Yeah. A big orchestra, brass, you know, and 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 used the the main title theme as kind of a starting point, that arpeggio as a starting point, and then was able to kind of just spread the wings and right. and take it into to some new places well that was it was wonderful and the uh you know I, I like that stranger things in general has uh music has kind of become part of the part of the show like you you kind of look forward i know i look forward to the the compositions and uh <laughs> i think they're gonna have a lot to live up to next year though because i think with kate bush and uh what was it and metallica the, you know, people are now going to be expecting like, what's going to be the, I can only imagine there's, there's like artist management all over, like submitting to Netflix, like, please use our song. It's you and It is unbelievable the influence that that show has. And after doing the Stranger Things, the the Kate Bush stuff, just seeing it all over my feed, which was just like people are using it for you know little bits of video content, and it just is like it, it honestly it was just a real honor because Kate Bush is awesome. Running up that hill is such an awesome song. And she was a real innovator and, and I don't think ever experienced the, the levels of success in the U S that she did in the UK. And right. Exactly. Or so many years later to become the biggest thing ever. And now a whole new generation is going to dig into her catalog and find all of her other music. I mean, that's like a once in a lifetime thing that, that happens like very, very rare. And it's so rad that it happened for her. And I'm just, it just makes me happy. So I, I hope that there's other artists that get kind of plucked out of, uh, you know, the the obscurity of the, of the past, and yeah, I'm I'm equally excited to see what they do with the new season. Right, because I'm just trying to think like if it goes later '80s, like I I just I love the idea of of you know some not forgotten, but like you said, maybe didn't hit the the peaks of success, some new wave band that maybe you know I don't know Gen Z doesn't know about yet, just like all of a sudden. Mm-hmm. everyone's going nuts um last thing uh the whale the trailer just dropped you mm. composed the whale this, this is this is a correct statement yes um lots of buzz already i can't wait um is there anything you can tell us other than you know it's, it's gonna a, be it's living up to the hype it's it's an incredible film it's an incredible film with one of the best performances I've ever seen and um, Brendan is just so sensitive and and has bright eyes and and is funny and uh, it's it's there's also moments of just heart-wrenching and I was destroyed the first time that I saw it so uh, and and Darren is you know one of my favorite living directors so this was a real special one for me and uh that's awesome i'm just excited for for people to see it it's really block out the night bring some tissues <laughs> and you know and and uh yeah i i don't know what to say and sadie 
like kind of doing that film and doing her scenes. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. It was like, that was a great moment to, uh, to be with her at Venice and, and kind of high five these, uh, you know, this, this is a big year for her and, and to, uh, and I, I'm such a fan of her. She's an incredible actor and I can't wait for the world to, to experience her in this role. She crushes it. That's awesome. Yeah, I'm really, really looking forward to that. I, I've been wait. I've been. I called the Brendan Fraser comeback years ago. I said, guys, I don't know. I was like, I don't know if it'll be like an AMC show or some streaming thing. But I, the fact that it's like this, Darren Aronofsky, like getting all this buzz. Like even here, it's starting to kind of get into to the culture a little bit. Like people are are really anticipating uh, that movie. So, uh, Renaissance. Yeah, it's it's right. Exactly, exactly. Uh, we always go when we go to Universal Studios. We always have to go on the Mummy ride. Pay our respects. It's the best. It's a fantastic ride. Um, Rob, you've been unbelievably generous with your time. Uh, I can't wait to see what comes next. Uh, you know, we we know there's more Ghostbusters projects coming. I hope you're involved. Uh, you did an absolutely amazing job. Uh, and I hope everybody uh, goes and checks out all of your past work because you have this unbelievable uh filmography in fact i watched the front runner for the first time uh fairly recently mm -hmm. and uh it's fantastic i loved it and, and intense and just uh yeah you're, you're killing it so we appreciate you being here Thanks. helping us celebrate we're gonna do this every six months just to let you know <laughs> <laughs> uh all right rob have a good one man all right thanks you too do i yes have some yes have some